Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to the Train Happy podcast. My name is Tally Rye and this week we are discussing fat phobia and how to deal with it. I'm joined by an activist, Reagan Chastain, who specifically focuses on fat activism. And we really get into a conversation what fat phobia is, how we can deal with it, and how those of us who hold more privilege in smaller bodies can be allies and, you know, take action to fight fat phobia in society. We also get into how fat phobia manifests in the fitness industry and how we can make the fitness industry more inclusive and it was just such a great conversation I learned a lot of really practical useful tips from Reagan so I really hope you're going to enjoy this episode now before we get into the episode just a reminder we have the Greece retreat coming up next year the final few spaces are left for September 2022 in Greece in a gorgeous villa just outside the town of Chennai and I can't tell you how beautiful it's going to be. It's five nights where you get to work on your relationship with fitness, with yourself and just really take time out of your kind of everyday life to just have a moment for you to explore Greece, to have fun but to also work on yourself and so the final few spaces are available i will link that in the show notes and this is at the point where i would normally do train happy trooper of the week but i have to be honest with you and say that we have no train happy trooper of the week so i want to do a shout out to say if you have had a train happy moment recently that you felt really inspired and encouraged by or you feel that other people may feel inspired and encouraged by then please do share it with me with the podcast and with our listeners if you'd like to be featured on the podcast and have your train happy moment read out as well as even being featured on our instagram page as well you can get in touch on our instagram direct messages at train happy podcast or you can email us train happy podcast at gmail.com but i would love to hear from you i want to feature you i want to continue to um, elevate your stories and what's going on with you okay enough from me for this introduction let's get into today's episode you're in for a treat Reagan, it is so lovely to have you on the podcast. I've wanted to chat to you for so long. How are you doing? I am great. It is so lovely to be here and I am super excited. So thanks for having me. I was doing my research on you and there's just, I mean, we I kind of mentioned before I click record, there's just so many things we could talk about today. There are so many things. You do a bit of everything um, from, you know, writing, I know you do a bit of dancing. Yeah, well, I haven't danced in a while, but I was a competitive ballroom dancer, yeah. That's so cool. Do you have the, you have the show, the show um, oh, what do you, we call it Strictly Come Dancing in the UK, but what's the version in the US? It's Dancing with the Stars. Dancing with the Stars. Oh, do you love that? Um, it, it's interesting. I do like it. Some of the guests I've had you know, real issues with, but other than that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately with those, I mean, we'll get into it as we get in the conversation and I think it'll become very clear to listeners, but yeah, that show um, can be, people can say fairly problematic things at times and things. So yeah, that we have that in the UK too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you went to comedy and activism and you talk a lot about fitness and you run workshops. I mean, is there something you're not doing? <laughs> oh, there are many things I'm not doing. <laughs> uh, but I, yeah, I'm really lucky to get to do 
fat activism in a lot of different ways, which I think helps me kind of keep going because it's, you know, I get different options and different experiences. I, you know, I talk to, I give talks to general audiences and then I give talks to audiences of healthcare providers, sometimes solely physicians. And so those are very different experiences. So I I feel really lucky to get to do what I do. So do you feel like that's what a lot of your kind of outlets and talents are being used for to kind of spread the word and and get the message out there in different means, whether, I don't know, whether it's through writing, comedy, online, about um, your work with fat activism and the kind of messages you want to get out there? Is that, do you feel like that's the kind of core of what you're doing? Absolutely. So my, basically everything I do in my life is to have a chance to tell people, look, you know, you don't have to buy into diet culture. There's nothing you can accomplish through diet culture that you can't accomplish in different ways. Um, You're not obligated to hate your body. And so fat liberation principles, health at every size principles. Um, And so I just want to deliver those in as many ways as possible. So that, because a lot of people, you know, I get emails every day from people who don't understand that they have an option. Yes. No, I want to support my health. So obviously I have to diet or, you know, I, my body is bad. There's nothing to do but hate it until it looks different. And so I want people to know that none of that is true. They, there's a lot of profit that comes from that, but not a lot of good. That's what I'm always trying to say. It's that for people, they don't know there's another way. They don't know, specifically when I'm talking about fitness, they there is not much information out there to go like, oh, you don't have to work out to burn calories. You could work out for actually many different reasons and you can move your body in so many different ways and it doesn't have to be this very narrow view. And I think it's it's sad that a lot of us go through life or get to a certain point in, in our adulthood. And I wonder if this these are the kind of conversations you're having with people where they're like, I've got to this point in my life and I'm only hearing this now. Definitely. I mean, I hear from people who, you know, of all ages who tell me, oh, I, I never heard this before. You know, I, I email a couple days ago, I'm 68 and I've been dieting my whole life. And I just like found Fat Activism Community and I found your work. And the idea that whatever time I have left, I don't have to spend dieting is blowing my mind and so incredibly freeing. And I think it's important to understand people are, you know, this isn't, people don't come to this randomly. It's sold to us aggressively. And so what we have to do is uh, make sure that people know this is not, we don't have to exist just to drive profit to the diet industry and to buy into a a paradigm that hates our bodies. And yeah. I'm curious how you got there how you ended up kind of finding out what diet culture is, um, understanding the kind of fat phobic society we're in and how weight stigma impacts uh, people in larger bodies. I'm curious how, what your journey to that point was. So it happened in pieces for sure. I am, was I was a bigger kid, but I was also a pretty successful athlete. So I didn't get a ton of body shaming. And then my junior year of high school, my friend's mom, who I am absolutely sure meant well, said, you know, you're going to lose that weight, right? You're like, you don't want to go to college fat, do you? And it was like a flip switched in my brain. And I hadn't really thought about losing weight a ton before that. And then pretty soon I was thinking about nothing else. And it devolved into disordered eating and an eating disorder. I was briefly hospitalized. And so I was lucky in that my recovery was atypically fast in terms of behaviors. But I was still considered, quote unquote, bigger than I should be. And so I had doctors telling me I needed to lose weight to be healthy, even while I was being treated for an eating disorder. And this is a a horrible and unfortunately far too common thing that happens to people in larger bodies with eating disorders. And so I remember a doctor saying, um, I mean, don't go crazy like you did before, but you're a naturally bigger person. So you're just going to have to worry about this your whole life. And I wish what I had heard was you're a naturally bigger person, right? That was, that was the grain of truth in that mess instead of like the wildly inappropriate other things he was saying. But so I did for years, I was trying to diet and I had the experience everybody has, which almost everybody has at least, which is you lose weight short-term, gain it back long-term. And uh, I finally was doing this incredibly strict diet. Uh, and medically supervised, but I was gaining weight. And so I finally said, you know, I quit. 
And they said, oh, no, you can't quit. And so they took me into this room and they brought this binder with pictures of like fat women kind of hanging out being fat. And the woman said to me, maybe you don't know it, but this is what you look like. And these women are going to die alone on the couch eating bonbons. And is that what you want for your life? And aren't you tired of hating your body? And so some cool things happened there. Like this is obviously, again, wildly inappropriate. But finally, I heard the right thing, right? I heard, oh, this is what I look like? Because I thought I looked so much like, quote unquote, worse than those women. that I was like, well, I don't have a problem with their bodies. So why do I have such a problem with mine? And then I grew up in very rural America. So I didn't know what a bomb bomb was. So that went straight over my head. Uh, but, but I was like, no, you know what? I am tired of hating my body. Like I'm exhausted. I have been hating my body. Like I was getting paid for it for years. And I wasn't happier or healthier or thinner. I was tired. And so I said, thanks. And I left and I sat in my car and came up with a two-part plan. So I was like, first, I'm going to learn to love my body no matter what, because this whole getting thin to like myself is not working out. But then second, I'm going to figure out how to lose weight to be healthy. And so I went through this process of really, you know, appreciating what my body did for me, examining where I got these negative messages about my body and who profited from them and getting mad about that. And so then I got to my second step and my background in school is research methods and statistics. So I was like, you know what? Let's do a literature review. Let's get all the studies we can about weight loss methods and let's find the one that works the best. And that's what I'm going to do instead of just doing random things. And so read all these studies, was so shocked by what I found that I went back and read them all again. Like I was doing calculations by hand, trying to figure out how I was misunderstanding because what I found was that there was not a single study, not one, where more than like a tiny fraction of people were succeeding at long-term weight loss. And so the study conclusion would be everyone who complied, you know, succeeded at weight loss, but then you dig in, 68% of people dropped out and the rest of the people had lost, you know, 10 pounds in one year, gained back five the second year, and then they stopped counting and said, well, see, they're below their original weight. You can do that, but you can't call it science, right? You can't pass freshman research methods. And so being a fan of math and logic, I was like, oh, this isn't going to (laughs) work. Like I'm not going to, I'm having the experience the research says I would have, which is short-term weight loss, long-term weight gain. And that's how I got into learning about health at every size. Um, and then ballroom dancing is what made me an activist. I had a judge basically corner me against an elevator and tell me that she couldn't stand to look at me because my dress had spaghetti straps. And I had done, I, my activism started in kindergarten. I was doing a ton of queer and trans activism. I'm a queer woman in college, anti-racism work, but I'd never thought of the treatment I got as a fat person as like that kind of system, systemic oppression. And so as I, as she's sitting there telling me she can't stand to look at me, I realized like, oh, like I want to be a fat dancer, but I'm going to have to be a fat activist to get this done. And this isn't just like a me thing. Like I was looking at all of this as like a personal journey. And I didn't know at the time, kind of embarrassing, that there was a whole like community of fat activism and fat liberation and health at every size out there. I was like doing this on my own through my own little research and stuff. And so that is when I started my blog, Dances with Fat, and kind of got connected. So short story long, here I am. And yeah, it just seems that I I have a feeling lots of people listening will may resonate with your own experience and your own story because like you say it's a common thing like a sadly all too common thing of people being repeatedly told do x do y and you know from your own experience and then when you look at the research just how much you're just trying to bang your head against a brick wall and trying to make something happen that we can see is not going to happen exactly Exactly. And, you know, the fact that it's become so insidious in uh, our healthcare mm. that if you ask a doctor who, who tells you that you should try to lose weight to be healthy, can you give me a single study where like even half the people were successful at this? They can't. You know, about 95% of people lose their weight short term and gain it back long term. And the failure rate is even higher as for higher weight people. So it's really stru- it's such a frustration to me that their do- the healthcare system is being failed by the research that's being funded by the weight loss industry. And what I found interesting is that when you kind of like look into it, and when I've seen people give advice on like, here's how people lose weight for good, 
And then you look into it and you realize that people are essentially on some sort of restrictive diet, have to be in that place seemingly forever. And even for those who may do that forever, it might not work for them. But there's the the unicorns within the statistic of that, you know, that 10%, that 5% are often people who have to constantly monitor everything they're doing. And I just think that's no life to live. Yeah. I mean, I take a pretty extreme view of bodily autonomy. So I think people can do what they want. But like you said, you know, these, these, a lot of these maintenance stories bear a striking similarity to what we would diagnose as an eating disorder in a thinner person. And Mm -hmm. as you said, for many people, they still aren't able to maintain their weight loss even doing that. I think about it like this. There are always outliers, right? There are people whose parachutes don't open, but they live. But that doesn't justify opening a school of parachuteless skydiving. And even if you find out that every single one of those people wore a green shirt and ate oatmeal for breakfast, you can't say, oh, well, then it's safe to skydive without a parachute, free green shirt and oatmeal with every jump. But that's what we're doing with weight loss. The finding commonalities among outliers does not do anything to prove or help the majority case. I was listening to a podcast today and it was all about... um... They, were, they they kind of hint, uh, spoke about correlation versus causation, and it, and it's that, isn't it? It's about this mm-hmm. whole idea that, okay, well, um, if something there are a few things that are common, like the green shirt and the oatmeal, it doesn't mean you're going to get a safe landing without a parachute if you go for a skydive. Exactly. And when you see things like the, in the States, the National Weight Control Registry, that's exactly what they do. They just, you know, they've been doing this. I think I first wrote about it in 2012 and they had 10,000 successes. And today they have 10,000 successes, right? And this, these are people who are self-reporting that they lost uh, at least 30 pounds and kept it off for one year. So again, most people gain back in years two through five. So they've given themselves like this efficacy cushion of four years. But so they're like, you know, whatever percent of these people eat breakfast every day. And that's fine. But in the dieting attempts during that time, there have been over a billion dieting attempts. And they've got 10,000 successes. So, And they have no idea how many of those billion people ate breakfast every day. Again, this is like freshman research 101 kind of stuff. You can't just find commonalities among outliers and then publish that as if it's helpful information for most people. You have to care about what are the billion people who didn't succeed at this experience. Um, the whole fact that there were 10,000 people in 2012 and there's still 10,000 people has blown my mind because I knew there were 10,000 people, but I didn't realize that numbers never really changed or significantly grown. Yeah. I only realized it when I like realized, oh, I blogged about this before. And I was like, oh my God, they're still claiming the same number of successes. This is ridiculous. Wow. That Wow. Wow. So yeah. amongst the work you're doing in that activism space, you are running workshops and there was one specifically that I thought was really interesting and something we could definitely cover more on this podcast and that is around fat phobia and how you deal with kind of fat phobic comments from friends family work colleagues and healthcare in all those scenarios and before we get into that I would like really appreciate you defining fat phobia and um and what it what it means. Sure. So to me, fat phobia is uh, the systemic oppression of people who are higher weight. And it leads to a lot of things. So there's internalized fat phobia, which is us feeling badly about ourselves. Uh, and there are some things that we can do about that. But there's also systemic oppression, which is everything from we walk into a doctor's waiting room and there are no armless chairs where we could sit down. You know, an airline wants to charge us twice as much for the same flight because they haven't bothered to create seats that accommodate us, healthcare inequalities, uh, employment inequalities. So all of these pieces. And so it's ways that uh, thinner bodies are privileged and fatter bodies are oppressed in our culture. And then all of the, the things that stem from that. Yeah, I mean, speaking as someone who is has thin privilege and a straight sized body, it is really interesting to me that even just seeing how fat phobia plays out on the internet of when you're scrolling through Instagram or whatever, and you see someone, this is just a really basic example, I see a lot of like, say I posted a picture of me eating a burger, 
and everyone's like, wow, I, I love that you're just eating like normal food and that's so cool. And then someone in a larger body would do the exact same thing. And, you know, I could say like, you know, this is a big win for me from recovering from my own disordered relationship with food. And someone in a larger body could say the same thing. And you know the comments are going to be different for those two posts. You know someone's going to get unsolicited weight loss advice. for the, And you know that I'm probably going to get, you know, all the praise and the cheering on. And I just see this massive double standard, which is everyone's fat phobia showing. Absolutely. I mean, that, yeah, that's a basic example. But I mean, when people talk about, oh, but thin privilege isn't a thing. I think to me, that's one of the most basic, clear as day um, <laughs> views that there are. Yeah, no, thank you for noticing and for saying that. I think what happens, I think people get confused because like thin people can experience body shame and a culture of fat phobia does negatively impact thin people because there's still a fear of losing thin privilege of, you know, being treated like fat people are treated. But that doesn't mean that fat phobia isn't real or that thinness isn't privileged, right? It's no, people shouldn't body shame thin people. And I'm absolutely against that, but it's not the same thing as not you know, having access to healthcare, being denied surgery because of your size. These are very different things. And so I think that people get confused and think that if I'm privileged, that means nothing bad could possibly happen to me or I'm not privileged. And that's really just not how it works. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I have spoken online about my own body image and I do talk about these things on here and whether it's in my relationship with food and my body and all those things, but I recognize that it's easier for me to heal in a world that, you know, um, where I am still straight sized, where I am um, in a smaller body than someone going through the same journey and process of healing in a world that is really set up for people in smaller bodies. Definitely. And, you know, fat phobia within eating disorders treatment is rampant Mm. and stops people from being able to recover. I hear horror stories from people who, you know, they all went out to get ice cream as a challenge food, but because they were in a fatter body, even though they were being treated for anorexia, they were told you shouldn't eat as much. Like everybody gets two scoops, but you get a baby cone or whatever. And so there's this fat phobia that within recovery community, and I do a lot of speaking within eating disorders, recovery community at conferences and stuff to talk about this because you know, it's, it prevents fat people from recovering, obviously. And it harms people of all sizes at some point. If you tell people that restriction is appropriate in order to not be fat, then it's easy to justify that restriction for somebody who's dealing with recovery. I think, yeah, I, I I think it's awful. And I'm, I'm so glad you're doing the work you're doing, but you're right. There's so much that needs to change. And I think, you know, from from your perspective, do you feel like that's not just a societal job, but really an internal job of examining your own biases? Um, you know, especially those who are listening who might be in the positions of providing support and care to people in eating disorder recovery, um, whether that's professionally or even a friend or family. I mean, I feel like even outside of the recovery um, space, there needs to be an examining of our own kind of fat phobia and and how like we um, are complicit in it, you know, whether it's a case of like saying like, oh, I want to, you know, okay, I can, I can gain weight, but I can't gain too much weight, you know, those sorts of things. Um, What are your thoughts on that? And, And how do you go about maybe starting that process? I think you're spot on. So I think we all have a responsibility to really examine our privileges, how that impacts other people, what we can do with that privilege to create equality. So I, you know, as a fat queer woman, I experience oppression, but as a white cisgender, currently able-bodied, currently neurotypical person, I have tremendous privilege. And one of the things that privilege does is it creates a situation where we don't know what we don't know. I'm not having these experiences. And so one of the mistakes privilege makes is to say, oh, I don't think that's a problem because I've never seen that happen, right? You see it all the time with, you know, when people come forward about racism and the knee-jerk reaction of, of white people is maybe maybe they didn't mean it that bad or that, I'm not sure that that's racism, right? So it's going out, really finding and listening to people whose experiences are different than ours, believing them 
and then learning like what can I do with the power and privilege that I you know have that's so completely unearned and so with weight stigma I think it's really important to be following and listening to fat liberationists but especially those with multiple marginalized identities and those who are the highest weights right as you know I have size privilege is relative so I have uh, less privileged than someone who is thinner than I am, but I have more privilege than people who are fatter than I am. And so if you look at, for example, Saucy West, who's an incredible activist and plus size model and fashion maven, has a, uh, a project right now called Fight for Inclusivity. It's a hashtag and a whole campaign she's running about the fact that we're sort of okay with plus size lines that stop at 3X or 26, 28. And that leaves out so many people. And so we allow brands to say, for example, we make clothes for all shapes and sizes and they stop at a 22. You know, what am I, not a shape or size? No, we make clothes for all bodies and it stops at a 3X. So people above 3X are not bodies. And so she got a ton of pushback, including some from fat community, like, oh, we should be grateful. And, you know, we're always, we're never happy, but we're talking about people who can't be clothed. And a lot of that also is rooted in racism. Saucy is a black woman. And so, you know, we are, I think, to your point, we're all responsible for understanding our privilege, for working to see the world through lenses outside of our own, and then for figuring out how to use our privilege for the best good. Mm. And, and I think figuring out how, yeah, you use that privilege um, and leverage that privilege, you know, for the better causes of, you know, in those scenarios of like amplifying and getting behind those people who are leading those campaigns. And yeah, know- I mean, I try and I make plenty of mistakes. I understand like part of the reason I have the platform I have is because of the privileges I do. So just figuring out what can I do with that platform to center the voices of people who don't have those privileges. Yes, I, th- I think it's something um, I hope that places like this podcast can really, you know, have conversations like that and and be a space to kind of like dive deeper into to these things because sometimes there's so much nuance nuance um not uh, available on instagram for example i find <laughs> that can be that can be a really it can be a very like binary place and it's really nice to yeah have these kind of conversations and actually yeah, just open up people's kind of minds to a different perspective. And, and I, I imagine people even listening today are going to feel like, oh, I hadn't even, you know, this is just completely outside my own experience. And I, you know, I'm, I'm new to this and, and I want to learn more, which I hope people do. Um, so I think one of the most common questions I get and one of the kind of most common topics people want content around which I think you do so beautifully is responding to people who make fat phobic comments um whether it's friends and family um and you know I know I've seen you kind of um and I'll do a plug (laughs) you have a (laughs) workshop coming up for the holidays so whether it's like that in the US Thanksgiving Christmas um and all that those sorts of holidays that you're going to be around family and friends more. And especially now post COVID, I think a lot of people's bodies have changed and a lot of people feel like they're kind of coming out of this hibernation um, and are apprehensive. What advice do you give to those people? Yeah. So the first thing I always want to say is this isn't our fault, even if it becomes our problem. And it's important, I think, to separate those two things, right? We're having to deal with weight stigma from family, friends, work colleagues, random yahoos on the internet, but that's not our fault. We didn't cause this to happen and it shouldn't be happening. And also, we don't have any obligation to debate for our right to exist. One of the things fat phobia does is give this idea that fat people should have to justify their existence, you know, including in ways that are really healthist and ableist in addition to fat phobic and ways that are racist as well. And so we've got this situation where people feel like anybody who demands a justification for us living our lives deserves one because we're fat. And that's not the case. So you can just shut it down and say, you know, oh, I have not soliciting opinions about this right now. Right. Or one of the ones that I find really helpful, especially like um, at the gym, 
or with people giving mm-hmm. me random unsolicited advice is to say, oh, I have no interest in your opinion <laughs> and smile big. And they're, cause they're not ready for it. Right. Yeah. And so then if they try to talk again, I say, no, no, seriously, no interest at all. It's big smile. And that like, so another thing about talking back to fat phobia is finding ways to keep yourself safe and whole. And that's my priority. I spend a lot of my time doing education. I spend a lot of my time politely asking people if they wouldn't oppress us so much. And that's, you know, an option. But I always want to be clear in these situations, my priority is that the person who's experiencing fat phobia is okay. And so it's not about tone policing. You don't have to center the reaction of the person doing the the bullying or the weight stigma, you don't, because we get a lot of, well, if you, if you talk to them like that, or if you're snarky, how will they ever learn? That's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to decide what you want to do. And so you, you can educate. And if, you know, it's hard with family and friends sometimes, because there's so much history, you can say, you know what, let me just send you some stuff online and then send them some resources rather than having that conversation in that heated moment and then just change the subject. Right. I have a friend who memorized a ton of facts about monkeys. And so when body shaming or fat phobia comes up, she just spurts out a random monkey fact, which it turns out will change the conversation. I know, right? Adorable. You know, but sort of anything. And then I advocate for with friends and family where you know this is going to be an issue, a three-step boundary setting process. And you can start that now or, you know, as we get closer to any kind of gathering you're going to have. So you three steps process. The first step is explaining your boundary, right? You know, there's a lot of talk about my food and weight every year and that's not okay anymore. And so, you know, this year it's important to me that you not talk about my food or body size, however you want to phrase that for you. Step two is the consequence. And this is, you got to pick a consequence that you can do. A lot of people think it has to be huge and it doesn't. In my experience, little things can be really effective, but it has to be something you can follow through with. So, you know, if it happens again, this year, then I'm just going to go ahead and like take my plate into the bedroom and eat, or I'm going to go ahead and leave and we can try again the next holiday or, you know, whatever you can do. And then step three is just to follow through with that. And when you do, so let's say you've told somebody not okay to police my food and they say, oh, do you need that second helping of mashed potatoes? And you say, okay, you know what? We talked about this. So I am, you know, like I said, since you can't respect my boundary, I'm going to go ahead and take my food into the other room and we can try again next time and then follow through. And at that point, they will probably try to guilt you and, oh, you're ruining the meal. But no, no, you know, I was clear and you are the one who causes problems. So you really want to make sure that person is clear, like you are experiencing the consequences of your own action right now. And I'm going to do what I need to do to keep myself okay. And then you can talk about it later, you know, have a conversation, but like you have the right to have your boundaries respected. A fat body does not indicate that it's open season for unsolicited advice and negative comments. You get to make boundaries for yourself. And if family doesn't respect them, then you get to take the action that makes the most sense to you. And I want to be clear too, anything that people choose is okay. So some people are like, yes, like my mother body shames me and it's terrible, but I just don't want to deal with it. And I want that relationship with my mom. That's valid, right? You don't have to talk back to fat phobia. You can internally roll your eyes. You can create a little like slogan that you say to yourself, like, oh, that's her fat phobia showing again. What a shame that she's still in that place and keep yourself safe that way. So you have a lot of options, but you know, in, again, my main advice is like center your needs and what works best for you and understand that no matter how you react, it's valid, that you can't control other people's reactions to what you do and that it's not your fault, even if it becomes your problem. I love that whole kind of really getting clear on you as an individual and what feels right for you and like you say so much of these comments are people's projection they are people's own stuff that it's their fat phobia showing like you said it is their own thing and you're right you don't have to take it on you you don't have to um yeah you don't have to listen you don't have to kind of stand for it and I also talk about this I did um a post recently about when you have that kind of voice in your head and I call it that diet culture voice and I name mine Simon and we tell Simon to fuck off like you know if he's getting a bit too loud and I think it's the same thing it's like going okay well that thought isn't my thought I can hear that thought I can go oh okay I see that thought coming in my head but I don't have to act on it I don't have to do what it says 
I know what I want. And I think that's a really great way of putting it in like the real world when you're dealing with other people outside of your own head <laughs> of, uh, you know, how you're, I love those clear, clear boundaries. Um, I think that's so important. Um, what other phrases do you like to say? Because I really love the like, I just don't love your opinion. Yeah, I like that one. I like, I'm not soliciting advice. Um, to shut that down. Uh, thank you, but I'm happy with what I'm doing. Yeah. You know? um, so those kind of phrases. And it, to me, it's really important. Like you get a couple in your back pocket and then practice them. I One of the ways that I have luck and privilege is that I just have that kind of personality that has like the quick wit. Like it's mm. been my whole life, right? So I'm never the person who's like, oh, I wish I had said this. I'm the person who said, who thinks like, well, that was witty, but I shouldn't have said it to the dean of my college. Right. That's I'm on the uh, the opposite end of that. And so uh, that is just a, a privilege and luck that makes these interactions easier for me. And so for folks who don't have that privilege and luck, then it can be really helpful to practice, you know, out loud with a friend. Uh, think getting yourself in that situation just so that when it happens, you're like, oh, I'm ready with this. You know, at the doctor's office, we talk about this a lot, having these, you know, simple questions because you can go in like, you know, to all of the evidence and everything, or you can say, um, I'm happy to talk about weight loss at a different time, but I'm here today actually for a sprained wrist. So can we focus on that in the limited time we have available? Or don't thin people get this health issue? Okay, what do you prescribe to them? Mm. You know, to help a doctor focus without having to, you know, get a PhD to go to the doctor you know, and argue with someone who may be in a position that they don't believe that you could possibly have more knowledge than they do. So finding these simple phrases and then practicing them can be really empowering. And then again, if it's a situation, a lot of times there's a power imbalance or a situation where you don't feel safe to say something or you just don't want to, right? You don't have the energy to deal with the drama. So you can instead then have your internalized thing. You say, okay, this is fat phobia. This is happening. Shame this person is in this place um, and I am not going to engage. Mm. And so another thing to just say is, okay. It can be as simple as that. Yeah. And just like, let it go. Okay. You know, until they, and then either change the subject or let them like run out of steam and just keep that internalized dialogue of like, oh, wow, this person is really bought into diet culture. They really are selling it to me hard, but like, I want an Instapot for Christmas, so I'm not going to buy into it. Right. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I don't want their fat phobia for the holidays. Did you feel like, um, cause I know I've been in experiences, whether it's been with family or like my partner's family and sometimes I imagine you can kind of like, I'm just want to go about my day today. Like whether there's a comment made necessarily not directly at you, but a comment in general made. And I think that's a different, uh, could be a slightly different scenario of whether you're watching a TV or, you know, a movie or something. Um, and someone makes a comment in the room and um, my boyfriend now can watch a TV show with me or watch something and just be like, that's diet culture. That's fat phobia. Like he sees it and he's like watching me to see what I'm going to do. <laughs> he's like, what's she going to say? What's she going to do? And he, and I can feel him sort of like, you know, when we're with other people, like slightly tense up, like, is, is she going to go for it? Or is she going to, what's she going to do? <laughs> um, and I, you know, I find personally that I often kind of, it really depends on the scenario of, right, am I going to go into this or do I just change the subject or just go, oh, okay, I disagree with you, but, you know, okay, I, I disagree with your opinion or I, I don't think that's true at all um, and kind of leave it at that. But I'm curious what you, what you would do, whether it's when comments aren't made directly at you, but they're around you and, you know, you don't want to get sucked into a conversation you don't want to have. Yeah. So you can make kind of general comments like, oh, I wish we lived in a world that affirmed and celebrated bodies of all sizes. Or, wow, diet culture is just everywhere. What a shame. And so you can, if people are making sort of ubiquitous comments to the room, you can make ubiquitous comments to the room, right? That kind of gives. And one of the things about activism that I try to remind people is 
you may not be able to change the mind of the person engaging in fat phobia. And so it may not be about that. To me, often if I'm commenting in a thread on the internet, you know, or engaging somebody, it's not for just that person. It's for anyone who's reading or listening. So that someone who reads this thread is going to have a different view. I have this uh, group on Facebook, a small group called Roles Not Trolls. And it started with the idea of putting a body, you know, fat positive things in fat negative places. So if there's a thread with a bunch of fat phobia, we just go in, leave fat positive comments, go out and never go back. I love that. Because it's not about debating this person, trying to change their mind. It's that when somebody's reading the thread, here's all of these other comments and centering resources. And like I said, especially those from multiple marginalized and super fat people so that people have somewhere to click and go and get more information if they want to. And then you've given them the opportunity and that's really all we can do is give people the opportunity to see where the, you know, the fat phobia that they're ingrained in and then make the change for themselves. I love the idea of the Facebook group. That is really genius. Just go in there, <laughs> swoop in. And you're right. I, I, do you know what? I never thought of it that way because I don't like, um, you know, if people were to send me something hateful online in general, I would just generally delete or block like I often don't have the energy to go in on it like I'm just like no that's not what I want to do I don't want to get my head in that place but I do think there's so much power in seeing the responses to that and seeing people yeah seeing a different like we spoke about at the beginning it's seeing a different option to a to a perspective isn't it it's like having choices in that being like oh I often read comments and things and, you know, you're like, oh, the general consensus is this, but that that's not what I think. I think, and then you see a, one of your comments and you're like, oh, okay, this makes a bit more sense. I'm curious on this. I think that's so great. And perhaps something that in general, um, maybe in not quite such a well-organized way, but I wonder if that's something that the Train Happy um, listeners could do is like, if we are seeing... Um, you know, if we're seeing someone being trolled in their comments about their size or whatever it is, that we go in there and put a comment um, with the kind of opposite opinion. <laughs> um, and just having it there just to see not only supporting that individual, but for others to see the support. I think that's like you say, that's, yeah, something that's really important. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think we have every right to moderate our spaces, right? I delete a ton of comments. I don't have to engage with anybody who figures out how to use the comment feature on Facebook, right? That's not Mm -hmm. my responsibility. Um, I think we have a higher responsibility if we're working in solidarity and it's not an identity Mm -hmm. we have. So if I post Mm -hmm. something about fat phobia and there's troll comments, I'm just deleting them. If I post something about transphobia or racism, now I'm obligated to get in those comments and educate and do the work as opposed to just leaving it like, well, I don't know if people of color want to come in here and say something like that's not okay. Now I've created a space where I'm allowing more oppression to happen in my space, I'm hosting oppression to my audience and that's not okay. So when we're posting about things outside of our own identity, I think we have a higher responsibility to get in there and share. And again, always centering the voices of the people from that community. I have, I'm an explaininator, right? That's what I do for a living. I explain things. And so I tend to want to be like, let me explain this, but that's not my place. There are people from the communities I work in solidarity with who are doing this work. So better to center their work and platforms instead of like making myself the expert. Such a great reminder. Such a great reminder. I hope everyone kind of takes that on board. Um, I wanted to also talk to you about your work within fitness and movement um, because I know these are topics you also run workshops on and specifically look at movement for people in larger bodies and kind of challenging that um, and, you know, challenging what fitness is to people and, you know, really unpacking people's relationship with exercise is something I'm personally so interested in. Um, and, yeah, I know you like you mentioned dancing but I know you're into other things am I right in saying you did you've done like triathlons and stuff and yeah so I was a competitive ballroom dancer um I am a two-time marathoner and I actually currently hold the Guinness record for heaviest woman to complete a marathon and then I've done some triathlons I'm my goal is to complete an iron distance triathlon but that journey has been a straight up debacle 
uh, which has taught me a lot about myself as an athlete. Cause I I've been an athlete my whole life, but I only ever did things I was good at right away. And so endurance sports are not those. I'm not, I don't enjoy them. I am not like good at them from a, the speed perspective. Right. And so it's taught me a lot, but yeah, I do a lot of different kind of fun fitnessy things. I love, I just, we just had London marathon this past weekend and I was watching it and I thought I will never do that. I will, I could stand there all day and cheer people on. And I, I really felt like I was contributing by kind of lifting people's spirits. I hope but I have so much admiration for anyone who wants to do that. Let alone doing an Ironman length triathlon. That's a lot. It is. So I actually got into the whole marathon thing. I injured my neck, my spine. And so the doctor said, we can avoid surgery for a while, but you're going to have to take, you know, some time off of all the things. Cause I'm a fast twitch athlete. I like hard work over short periods of time. I like lifting heavy weights. I like, you know, that kind of work. And he was like, yeah, none of that. He's like, you can basically go for walks. And I am not a go for a walk person. Full support for people who like to do that. But I was like, I'm never going to do this. And so I had to pick a big goal in order to get myself to do these walks. And so I realized 20 weeks out, which was the time of my recovery, there was a marathon in Seattle where my best friend lives. And so I emailed Kelrick and I was like, do you want to do a marathon with me? And because he's the best, best friend ever, he responded, I'm in. And so that's how that happened. And so it started out like that, but it became, like I said, kind of an exploration of what is it like when I'm struggling? Because as a dancer, you know, the trolls are like, you're the worst dancer in the world, but I'm a three-time national champion. So like count the trophies, you know what I mean? It was easy to, it was easy to feel like, you know, whatever about that. And so as, you know, a, a fat marathoner who's glacially slow, right? And I walked my marathons, I didn't run them. Uh, the second one, I did some intervals, but like for the most part, I walked them. And so it really was like learning about myself and about myself as an athlete when I'm not doing something that I'm good at. And so the, I, the, I finished the first marathon and we decided we were like team never again, right? It was terrible. Never wanted to do it. And then I learned I could get the Guinness world record. And a lot of the work, my, my main focus in the fitness world is that absolutely nobody is obligated to participate in fitness and participating doesn't make us better than anyone else, right? I've done both. I can tell you for sure. Netflix marathon, finishing a marathon, morally equivalent activities. Agreed. So nobody's obligated to participate, but everybody should be welcome. And a lot of times fat people think they don't belong or have a place. So I was like, man, getting this record is a way to sort of stick fat people in the fitness world. And so I set the record so it would be broken. But when I first saw it, I thought, oh, I'll just submit my marathon time. They'll give me the record. No, you have to do, it's very specific. There's a ton of hoops to jump through. I had to be weighed on a scale that weighed me to the gram. Wow. Like we had to do a calculation of the gravitational pull at that latitude and lunch is a lot. And so in, to try to psych myself up for doing the second marathon that I absolutely did not want to do, uh, I was listening to like audio books about other athletes. And a lot of them had done an Ironman triathlon. And I was like, well, here is a chance to really explore this me outside of my comfort zone. Cause I can suck at three sports over an extended period of time and distance, right? What a great chance. So that's how I ended up thinking that was a, a goal I wanted to have. Wow. I hope you realize it. I hope, I hope it ends up happening. Me too. It's been a a long journey, so many like weird setbacks. Like I kept having it scheduled and then like uh, I got sick or my family member went to the hospital or something or COVID, right? It was supposed to be oh, yeah. last May. And then we went into lockdown in March. So now because I haven't been training because my partner's high risk, so we've really quarantined, I'm going to have to start all over. So my two-year plan is now seven or eight years or some ridiculous amount of time to do this thing. So I want to get it done. I want to cross the finish line. And then I want to never do it again. <laughs> I believe in you, though. I think you can do it. Thanks. <laughs> um, I mean, but amazing. And you're right. That's the thing that so many people don't see themselves in fitness spaces, don't feel represented or seen or welcome or included. Um, and especially for people in larger bodies, the assumption that is if you're in fitness, you're there to lose weight. That's all mm -hmm. it is. It's a tool for weight loss, not anything else. You shouldn't really be enjoying it. You shouldn't, you know, whatever else, the whole narrative behind it um, that is there. How do you think we can make fitness spaces feel more inclusive and feel more welcome to those in larger bodies? I think a big part is divesting from diet culture. 
the most common representation of myself that I see when I walk into a fitness space is some kind of wall of before and after pictures, which tells me that they view my body as a problem to be solved. And I know that they don't have the after after pictures where almost all of these people have gained back their weight and probably quit coming to the gym because they are embarrassed even though it's not their fault, what happened to them is exactly what would be expected. So it's getting out of diet culture. It's stop sell. We have to stop selling what we actually can't produce. If someone's saying that they can help someone lose weight long-term, they can't produce a single study that would suggest that that's true. So we have to start looking at fitness goals outside of changing bodies and not just weight loss, but like I can make your butt look a certain way or I can make, you know, these are not things we're entirely in control of. Genetics plays a role. A lot of things play a role. And so it, you know, looking at goals, like, what do you, do you want to lift your grandkid? Do you want to like dominate your Saturday wheelchair basketball game? What is your fitness goal? I think we have to look at the fact that people come to, to movement for a lot of different reasons. So we, a lot of times, especially like in health at every size community, we talk about joyful movement. Mm-hmm. And that's awesome. It's, you know, if that's why people want to move, that's amazing. But that's not the only reason. For some people, it's about managing a chronic condition. And they they don't really get joy out of movement, but it helps support them. And so they do it. You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of people, some people do it for achievement. I do not enjoy triathlon, but I like medals and they only hand them out at the end. So here we are. So <laughs> understanding and respecting different goals, I think, is really an important piece of it. And then understanding and providing spaces to heal past trauma around physical fitness. In the United States, um, I'm not sure how it is there, but in the United States, it's dodgeball, the president's physical fitness test, the pacer test. Our physical education system is not remotely created to develop a lifelong love of movement in our bodies, right? It's developed, it's developed on the principles of toxic fitness culture. And so for a lot of people, they've had, you know, they come to me and they've had just a messy breakup with exercise, (laughs) And they're not sure if they want to reconcile or have a divorce. And so understanding too, you don't have to do this. There are so many ways to, that we can support ourselves, support our health, support our relationships with our bodies. So if movement isn't the low hanging fruit or if there's trauma around that, then people can choose other things. Yes. I often talk about movement from being playing when you're a child to then when you go through school, it becomes like you say, this, um, Thing you have to do and you know we have I mean we do a lot of sports here in our um physical education but we also do things like um we have to do a cross-country run which I remember like coming very near last in my whole year and then hated that naturally I mean I hated PE at school like I would do anything I could to get out of it the fact that I work in fitness now I think is hilarious probably to everyone I went to school with um <laughs> because I'm the least likely person. But I, yeah, I, I totally appreciate. And I think for those, whether it's, you know, feeling like you were never picked for the team and then the, uh, the various degrees of trauma around that experience is, is so real and so true and something we have to work through. And then I think we get through school And then after that, exercise seems to be only about achieving these before and after photos, only about getting a certain body to make yourself attractive to someone else. And there is no play and there is no fun. And and it feels really rigid, like exercise is in a very narrow box of a certain few things that it has to be done within the the confines of a gym and or it has to be running it has to be that and I I really love and I wonder if this is something you talk about in your workshops as well this idea of exploring movement as play as an adult and just being really curious about different ways to move your body and perhaps not calling it exercise at all calling it movement so that it feels like a different thing so it's not you're not doing PE you're you know you're gonna try and do paddle boarding you know you're not doing PE you're gonna go to maybe a ballroom class and learn a few steps of ballroom and I think when you don't go that this thing is this is exercise what I'm doing right now is exercise um and you don't even put the pressure on yourself to be like okay I must be really good at this and I have to massively improve my levels of fitness and you just go and just be and have fun and play I think it does get back to those childhood roots Definitely. hundred percent agree. And I think to me, it's also, so it's important to be like, I'm going to look at this as an exploration, like you said. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to try some stuff. 
right? I know what I don't like to do. I don't like to do tests in PE that they didn't even like so much of physical education is telling you to do stuff that you have no preparation for. Yeah. Right. Every year in PE, we would run a mile at no point did we run at any other time in PE. So it'd be like going into a math class where you didn't do any math. And then they were like, all right, factor this quadratic equation, even though like we spent the whole semester building dinosaur models or whatever. It just doesn't make any sense from an education perspective. But yeah, so getting curious and exploring and like, I'm just going to take my body out for a spin. And then also I think uh, discovering the joy of quitting, Yeah, right? It's no longer like you join the softball team. And so you're going to keep this commitment. You can leave five minutes into class. Mm-hmm. You can d- take one class and be like, yep, that wasn't for me and celebrate that victory of learning in the, your exploration, mm-hmm. right? Hey, you know what? I tried aerial silks and I hate it, it turns out. And so I'm not going to do that again. That's a victory. That's a win. That's not like this idea of like quitting as a bad thing. This is about finding what works for you and what you like. And that can be the only thing that matters. Um, and I think too, just to go back, one of the really important things I didn't talk about is representation. Yeah. We, you know, fitness facilities need to have representation so that someone who walks in will see themselves represented in artwork, in the staff, in leadership. So that's making sure that you have representation of fat people, people of color, trans people, and queer people, disabled people, and making sure that we're bringing down barriers, right? Are there facilities here that work for people of all genders? Are there policies in place here so that people don't experience oppression, And if not, like, let's get on that and let's do our own work. So I think that's a big piece of it too. Often we look at people's relationship with fitness and their trauma and dealing with barriers as an individual issue. But again, this is systemic. And so there's a lot of work to be done in fitness community to bring down barriers to participation. I couldn't agree with you more because I see, you know, I see these different spaces I work in these spaces I have worked in them before and it's just glaringly obvious that why people would feel so unwelcome in certain things and I think some people don't realize that um whether it's and I don't know if you have them like you know like the turnstiles to get in the physically in the gym Mm -hmm. um if you are um a wheelchair user or you're in a larger body like you need to have a different way. That's, that's not just, we talk about barriers. That is the most physical barrier of all. It says like, this is, you have to be this size to get through the barrier. And I think <laughs> they're like the most basic things, but we haven't spoken about it. Um, yeah. Do you know something that's been brought to my attention? This is a bit of a, a side note, but I've been on um, TikTok. I don't know if you're on there, um, but it's been really interesting to see people show how there are wheelchair ramps within certain spaces, but they're so steep that people couldn't get up or down them. So they technically tick the box of there's a wheelchair ramp here, but they're not usable. And in fact, they're downright dangerous for anyone who's trying to go down it. Um, And I think it's those considerations when people aren't consulting the people within the communities they want to include and they're trying to do it off their own thing then that's where where we need more work. We need more of that collaboration. And like you say, like talking to the people who don't feel included and say, how can we include you? And what specifically could we do better? Yeah. And making accommodation a primary goal and not an afterthought. Nothing says we didn't care if wheelchair users could get into this space more than an unsafe ramp, mm-hmm. right? That is something that should have been taken into account from the beginning and we should, you know, I used to have a cabaret dance company here in LA and I would try to book theaters and I would say, is this fully accessible? And they'd be like, absolutely. Oh, except that there's two steps up to the bathroom. And it's like, oh, that's great because people can levitate their wheelchairs if they have to go to the bathroom. No, like that's not accessible and that's easily fixed. You can get a ramp. Like, so with all of these things, whether it's larger bodied, whether it's creating anti-racism principles, whether it's making sure that people of all abilities can access a space, that has to be primary and not an afterthought. Mm. It shouldn't be like, well, here's where everybody enters and then here's a special entrance for you. Because what that says is like, we don't think of you as a primary person who belongs here. Definitely. Definitely. Like we consider you different than the, yeah, there's that. Um, I think that's quite a clear message to send to people if it's, you know, if, if people do feel like, oh, this is 
this is an afterthought. Um, and I know people, one that we didn't touch on is active wear. And I know there's, I've seen discourse within um, kind of uh, these kind of fat positive spaces of people saying that, yeah, you designed the leggings and you designed the things, but you didn't design this for a person with a larger body because this isn't gonna, this waistband does not work. This bra yeah. is not giving me the support I need. Um, yeah, I'd love to uh, maybe hear your recommendations on um, activewear uh, and things like that. Yeah, it's incredibly frustrating to me because it's this, it creates this hypocrisy, right? People are always like, oh, fat people need to exercise, but apparently they would like me to do it in a toga fashion from a bed sheet. Yeah. Because they get, you know, when there are, when you see like plus size activewear, then the trolls come out and are mad that you know, fat people would have leggings to wear. So it, there's this hypocrisy that is behind it. Um, there's a lack of understanding within the fashion industry, which tells me a lack of caring in a lot of places, right? It's not, you can't just size up a thin pattern and fit a fat person. That's not how bodies work. And if this is your area of expertise, then you need to be talented enough to understand that. And you need to like do whatever you need to do to get the education that you need, not just put out things that aren't going to work in a world that tells us we should blame ourselves if clothes don't fit us, mm. right? That adds incredibly to oppression. And so I, again, I would send people to Saucy West's fight for inclusivity because uh, she's got a list of um, companies to support that are being inclusive. And so I can send you that link to put in the show notes, but that is kind of where I would go. I was literally and writing a physical note down to say, I'm going to include that in the show notes. <laughs> but yes, if you send me that link, that'd be fab. Yeah. But yeah. And it's, you know, as a triathlete, I, there isn't a single triathlon kit that fits me. There are some that are big enough, but they're not made for my particular body shape, which isn't like anybody's fault. But the fact that like, literally it doesn't exist. So I wear this like Franken kit of clothes that I put together <laughs> to be able to do this, that, you know, when gearing up is harder than doing the event itself, that's a huge problem. And it's a barrier and it creates a lack of representation. If we can't get dressed to go to the fitness space, then we can't go. And then we're, again, deprived of the ability to have and be role models for other folks and for to see representation. And so it becomes a huge issue. Mm. There's, yeah, there's been um, various things here. We've got, I know one of our listeners is a person called Sarah and she has an account called Plus Size Paddler. And her thing is for specifically working to get wetsuits available in plus sizes in the UK so she can paddleboard um and you're right there's that common common argument and this is um yeah you see it happen over and over again oh we want you like oh people in large bodies should exercise but we don't want them to have nice clothes to do it in and we yeah it's like one of those damned if you do damned if you don't scenarios when it seemed totally logical to just make people the clothes they need you know it's yeah well there's this ridiculous premise that like if you make clothes to fit fat people you're somehow quote-unquote promoting obesity right which is ridiculous first of all the whole term obesity is like such a messed up term it was made up to pathologize fat bodies it's based in uh, really racist uh, fundamentals. And I recommend um, Sabrina Strings, Fearing the Black Body, yes. and Deshaun Harrison's Belly of the Beast, critical reading around this. Mm. So you've got that, but also this idea that, oh, somehow fat people will be less fat if they don't have any clothes to wear. That doesn't make sense on its face. So it just, again, all of these things become like a thin veil to uh, justify oppression. Mm-hmm. And because people, a lot of it comes from troll culture, right? People just like to hate fat people. And they try to justify it with health or they try to justify it with, you know, ableism. But in fact, what it is, is they just hate fat people and they, you know, want the chance to do that as often as possible. It's something that I think, yeah, specifically, you know, in fitness, in the space I'm in, is something that we all need to kind of change together and need to make sure we are, yeah, making, making, um, something accessible that we know will benefit people, will help people um, feel more confident, feel more, um, build greater self-esteem. I think these things are so important. And, you know, I think movement can be a great way 
to do that when you have the right kit, when you have inclusive, safe spaces. Um, and we need to have a responsibility. And I'm speaking about the uh, having that thin privilege. You know, I know that there will be certain doors that are open to me that I can therefore have conversations with people and use that opportunity to say, okay, but you need to talk to this person and you need to make sure that you're doing X, Y, Z. And like this person has really great recommendations for how we could, you know, make, if you wanted to do something inclusive, how could we make it really inclusive? Um, So Reagan, I've really enjoyed all your kind of tips. And like I said, for people listening, you've got workshops you're running, but before we get before we go into the full um, where everyone can find you, I would love to know what has been your most recent train happy moment. Um, so I uh, had to have surgery on my spine. I had a I had severe spinal cord compression at two levels. So I had a, a cervical fusion at two levels. And um, I had, this had been going on since 2013 that I had like a ton of pain around that. And so the, the surgery allowed me to be able to move freely in ways I haven't been able to do in years. Mm -hmm. And so the pandemic has been rough because I had to stop my triathlon training, but it has allowed me to get back into like fun dance fitness in my living room. And so that's been really fun to be able to do that and to be able to, to do it without fear of like harming my neck. So that's been really great. Oh, that is so good. Is there any specific dance fitness you're into? Um, there's a group, a Zumba group from the Philippines called Live Love Party, and they have all of these uh, videos on YouTube, and they are really fun, and I, so I've been liking them a lot. Oh, I love that. I love that. I love, I love dance fitness myself, having had a kind of musical theater background, um, and so, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I love it too. Um, so Reagan, where can everyone find you? Where can people find your work and support you? So the best place to start is danceswithfat.org. And from there, you can find all of my social media. You can also find, I do monthly workshops and I, there's videos of past workshops and they always have a pay what you can afford option because I don't want money to be a barrier. So people can check those out and, you know, search blog posts and uh, find whatever information hopefully can help them. I will put all of that in the show notes for everyone to find. But thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you. I really appreciate your work and I really appreciate you letting me be a little part of it today. So thanks. And that is it for this week's episode of the Train Happy Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you took something away from this episode. And if you did, please let me know by sending feedback. You can find us on Instagram at Train Happy Podcast. Or even better, it would be amazing if you could rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you're listening, as it really, really helps to support and boost the train happy message. And remember, if you have had a recent moment where this stuff has just started clicking for you, then share your story with us via email, trainhappypodcast at gmail.com to become the train happy trooper of the week. And if you have a burning question you would like me to answer, then please send those in too. And it may be answered in our bonus Q&A episodes. Once again, thank you for listening and I will speak to you soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.